All right, if we could start making our way back to our seats. We're going to go ahead and get started. And I'm going to ask Trent if he will come forward and uh, read our uh, scripture passage for this evening. Probably don't need that thing. Today's scriptural reading comes from the third chapter of Malachi, uh, the sixth verse through the fourteenth verse, through the twelfth verse. Sorry. And it reads, the scriptures read, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test says the Lord if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear says the Lord of hosts then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight says the Lord of hosts So you almost said Micah. Yeah. Uh, you, you got Micah on the mind, yeah. right? Yeah. So if you guys didn't know, they have a new addition since last week. Um, uh, baby Micah, not baby Malachi, baby Micah. Um, and so, um, let's go to the Lord in prayer and, um, and, and then we'll, uh, we'll look at his words. So Father God, we again thank you for this time, God. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the fact that we have this objective source, God. Uh, that you have given us an objective revelation that we can go to and learn about who you are. God, learn about your character, about the way you interact with your people. Um, God, what you call us to, what you, uh, how you would have us live. God, you, you show us, um, uh, the nature of our hearts in your word, the depths of our depravity. God, most importantly, we see, um, the glory of your son, Jesus Christ in your word, um, how he has come into a world to live a perfect life in our place, to die a perfect death in our place. God, to uh, rise from the grave, um, to ascend and to sit at your uh, right hand, uh, reigning for eternity. Father, we um, ask that as we open your word and as we study it, that you would use it um, to to shape us in the image of Jesus Christ. God, we, we are thankful um, for the, the working of your word um, as it goes throughout um, our community uh, this Lord's Day. Father, we, we recognize that uh, when your word goes forth, it does not return void. 
Um, that even when we don't see its immediate effects, even when we um, fear in our own doubt and anxiety, God, that um, that your word is is uh, falling flat, God, we know that your promises are that you are using your word to accomplish your purposes. And so we pray, um, God, that you would use your word um, to spark revival in our community. God, for each of our churches in Blunt County um, that on a weekly basis are, are preaching um, the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, who who uh, stand in the pulpit and and deliver um, Christ-centered, um, biblically-focused, God-exalting um, sermons. God, we pray that you would use those ministries, that you would use those times to to ignite people's hearts, to to um, God draw them away from their own self-centeredness, their own um, idolatry, and to focus them on you uh, and your Son Jesus. Um, God, help us to do that in this time. Um, shine a light on our hearts, shine a light on this text, um, and and use it for your glory in this time. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, so we are we are continuing our series in Malachi. Um, we've kind of talked about the fact every week that that we are in this season of the church. It's called Lent. And Lent um, sort of historically and liturgical, more liturgical church calendar-oriented traditions. Um, was the, the days leading up to Easter. It was a time of, of repentance and, and, uh, confession, a time of, of self-reflection as, as, as people prepared for, um, the, the celebration of the resurrection. Okay. And so in, in the ancient church, there were oftentimes where that day was the day that all baptisms happened, which was a kind of a cool thing that if you became a believer during the course of the year, you would go through classes and, and catechizing and you would learn and, and grow and, and stuff in, in your understanding of the gospel. And it would be on Easter Sunday that you would be baptized. And so Easter, Easter took on this, this other significance, right? Where people were praying for you and preparing their hearts, um, as you approach that day. And so what we've been doing is going through the book of Malachi, which is broken into six disputations, six sections where God says something and the Israelites come back and say, yeah, but God, and then God says, no, but this, right? And, and, and explains it further. And there are six of those and there's six weeks of, of, of Lent. And so, so there's, there's a nice little pattern for us there. And so that'll, we'll finish up the book of Malachi on, on, um, resurrection Sunday and, um, and bring the, the message sort of completely around, um, back to, to Jesus. But we come to this passage and it's kind of funny, um, because this is the section without question that is the most preached on section of Malachi. Okay. If there's any section in Malachi that gets preached on regularly, it's the passage that we're in today. Um, and something funny has happened over the last few weeks as I've talked to people. So when you're a preacher, a common question that you get asked is, what are you preaching on? Right? Like probably nobody's ever asked you that. Okay. But, but it happens all this. It's almost like a greeting with people. You know, you see somebody, you're like, Hey, how's it going? They're like, Hey, good to see you. What are you preaching on these days or whatever? Okay. And so I've been saying, well, we're, we're preaching this series through Malachi and I'm not kidding. Three, four, maybe more than that times the person has said, Oh, are you doing a series on tithing? Okay. Um, as far as many people are concerned, the only thing worth hearing out of the book of Malachi is the section on tithing. Now, here's the deal. I hope the case is, is that you guys 
realize that is not the case, okay? That there is lots of good stuff in the book of Malachi, that there is, um, that there is a call to holiness and a call to repentance that, um, that is beneficial outside of this message of, um, about tithing and giving and things like that. Um, but there's no doubt that this is probably the passage that is most well known and off the most oft referenced, um, in, in probably the book of Malachi. Um, and what we find here is this, that just as we saw a few weeks ago, that Malachi has a particularly strong passage about marriage and divorce. Um, we also see a particularly strong passage about the, 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 the concept of tithing, okay? The, the concept of, of giving um, to the Lord in general, all right? And that's what we're going to be talking about. And that's the focus of the passage. But interestingly, that's not where God starts, he doesn't start the conversation with the issue of giving. He starts a little bit in a different place. And that's in verse six. And so he starts off saying this, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Okay. We begin that we began the whole book of Malachi weeks ago, where God started by talking about his electing love of the people of Israel, right? The fact that God had chosen them out of all the people of the world, that he was committed to them, um, and that they were his particular people, okay? Well, what we see in this passage is there is another aspect of God's commitment to us here. Notice what he says. He says the, the, the effect of this is that you, Israel, are not consumed. You have not been destroyed because of this characteristic that is in me. And that characteristic of God is that I do not change. I, the Lord, do not change. We have a fancy theological word for that. It's called the immutability of God. God doesn't change. He is always, another way to say it is that he is always faithful he doesn't go back on his promise. He doesn't get bored. He doesn't bail on you. He doesn't get frustrated. He doesn't change his mind about you. He doesn't go back on promises when those promises are inconvenient or when people aren't living the way that he wants them to live. He doesn't change like many of us change, right? We find ourselves changing all the time. We make commitments um, publicly or in our hearts or whatever, and then we find it's very easy to go back on those in different ways, but not God. God doesn't change. And it is because of his unchanging commitment, this unchanging commitment, that God continues to bear with his people. So again, he's saying, I will continue to be with you. I'll continue to love you. And the reason for that is not because of something that's in you. It's because of something that's in me, right? Because I am a God that doesn't change. It's because of that immutability, if you think about it, that we can trust in our salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. So think about it like this. Like, how would you know? So, so we know that the Bible says that if we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. That's the promise. How do you know God's not going to go back on that? How do you know that 2,000 years later, God's not going to go, I changed my mind. From now on, it's about doing some other thing. That's how you get saved. Well, the answer is because God doesn't change. Because God has promised those things in Jesus Christ, and God keeps his promises. So that's where we find ourselves, all right? And so God points this out to Israel. He begins with this thing of saying, man, I have not changed in my affections to you, okay? I have not changed in the way that I feel about you. 
And then, and it's a little bit biting too, because you know what he says then next in, in, in verse seven, he says, and the reality is, is Israel, you've not changed either. You have an immutability of your own in a way. The problem is, is it's not the good kind. Verse seven says, for the day, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Who are the fathers? Certainly they're actual fathers, you know, fathers and grandfathers. Maybe thinking all the way back to um, the pre-exile fathers, right? The, the, the Israelites who were living as Israel was judged and sent into exile in Babylon. But really, all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, 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 and those people, right? And God is saying, in a sense, you've not changed either, Israel. You have been turning aside from my word the whole time. And yet, I have not stopped loving you. I have not turned away from you. I have not quit on you as a people and picked somebody else as my people. He says, you have lived in patterns of unfaithfulness and sin just as your fathers did all the way back. And if I wanted to discard you, I could have, but I haven't. You have given me every cause over the years to do it. But I haven't. Why? Because I made a commitment to you. I made a covenant with you. And I do not change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's something very important for our times, is it not? As we listen to people talk about the church, the Bible, God himself, they're going to have to get with the times, right? They're going to have to catch up with uh, modernity um, and the progress that we have made in our understanding of life and sexuality and all kinds of different things. That God's going to have to catch up. But God says, I don't ever change. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in fact, in that non not changing the mercy that I have extended to you throughout history is still there even to this point. The second half of verse 7 says what? He says, even now, right now, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord. You're not too far gone. I haven't quit on you yet. If you'll return to me now, I will return to you. And so let's stop there for just a second and say this, man, and be honest. As we've gone through the book of Malachi, as you go through any book where the whole point of it is to call people to repentance, and to convict, to convict them of their sin. Then it can feel like as we read these things, it's like one thing after another we are not living up to, that we are falling short in, that we were living unfaithfully in. And it almost can feel like if you get your eyes in the wrong place, it can feel like God is just this impossible parent, right? Who you can never please. He is eternally harsh. He is eternally angry. He is eternally displeased with us. And the hard thing is, is that some of us, had those kind of parents or those kind of relationships in our lives. And that just doubles down on that, right? We start feeling like, and this is the exact way I was, this is the way I felt when I was growing up or whatever like that. But that's not the case. It is the opposite of the case. On the contrary, the father is always saying, come back home. Just come back home. We, we, we continue to go back conceptually to that prodigal son story, right? The father who allows us to walk away and yet who is sitting there waiting, looking to the horizon, waiting for the day that the prodigal son returns, right? Waiting for the day that he can run out and meet him on the road and bring the ring and the robe and the fattened calf 
uh, and to celebrate, right? But but that has to always be in the background. When God is speaking to us in judgment, when he's speaking to us in discipline, we always have to remember that call in the background. Return to me, and I will return to you. That's the grace that is also unchanging, immutable in God the Father. My love for you has not changed. It will never change. But you got to come home, right? We can't continue to live in this way where you're living off on your own and doing your own thing and trying to make things work. It's not going to work that way. You have to come home. So then rhetorically, the people of Israel say, okay, God, how? What do we need to do to return to you? How would we go about, how shall we return to you? And the interesting thing is the answer is a little bit unexpected because first, God answers their question with another question. But then the the, the eventual answer is probably not what we would have thought as, as the main thing. So they say, how shall we return? And God says, well, i got a question for you. Will a man rob God? That is to say, can a man rob God? How is this, how are men robbing God? And he says, well, you can, and you are, you are robbing me, God says. But again, the people come back rhetorically. Well, how are we robbed? You? That doesn't make any sense. How can you rob God? And God says, you have robbed me in your tithes and in your offerings or your tithes and your contributions. So um, God basically is saying, it's going to be hard for you to return to me because you are actively robbing me. Okay. Um, that, that would be a weird relationship to have with somebody. You're like, Hey, I, I love you, friend, father, you know, whoever I am stealing from you. Right. But I love you, man. I love you. Um, I want to be in the right relationship with you. I want to keep on taking things from you, but I want to, God says, that's probably not going to work. You're going to have to stop robbing from me. Okay. And that language is important. We're not just withholding something from God. We are not just withholding something even that we owe God. The language is one of actively taking something that belongs to him. The language is of theft, of robbing. It's interesting how language kind of subtly betrays the things that we think. So let me give you an example. This is something that you've said, I'm sure, something that I've said probably a million times as a pastor. When we talk about tithing, we talk about the idea that tithing is giving back a portion to God of what he has given to us, right? We use that language all the time. Seems on the surface like there's no problem with it, except there is a problem with it, is because that makes it sound like God has said, here's this stuff, and you are now free to do with it whatever you want, because it's yours. You do with it how you please. But the language of this passage changes that a little bit, because he says, no, 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 you are robbing from me. You are taking something that belongs to me. All right. That that language of theft is significant. The tithe, the offering that we owe God is something that already belongs to him and we have absconded with and now are refusing to give back to him. It's not just something that we have said, what's mine to do with as I please, and I don't please to do it, so I'm going to keep it for myself. He gave it to me. Um, you, you ever had a kid, like at a, a, a birthday or a Christmas thing, and you're sort of like, well, I gave him this present. Well, it's his present now. You know, it's his toy. He can do with it what he wants. Um, you know, it belongs to him. That's not the language that he uses in this passage. 
He says, you are taking something that belongs to me and keeping it, refusing to give it to me. You're stealing from me. You're robbing me. And guess what? There are consequences for that. There are consequences for stealing from God. The outcome of this, when we rob God, is that we end up coming under the curse of God. So he says in verse 9, because of these things, you are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me. The whole nation of you is robbing me. So here's something interesting. We read in the book of Deuteronomy about the law of God, right? We see the law of God in, in, in there. And towards the end of the book, in chapter 28, there's a section that gives Israel a list of blessings and curses for living in obedience before God, okay? And verse 20, uh, chapter 28, verse 18 says this. As part of the curse that comes upon us um, for our disobedience, it says, the fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. So basically what he says is there's a consequence for our disobedience. And at least part of that consequence is we will immediately, um, or, or in the long run, at least, we will see um, God begin to take things away from us, okay? Um, God will not entrust us with things, because we are unwilling to give him what is owed him. And you can, and you can already see that the, 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 the circular kind of messed up situation that will happen here in the hearts of the Israelites. Cause you know what's going to happen? God says, you, you have not given to me what belongs to me. So you're under curse now. You are not going to receive the things that you would have received otherwise. Well, guess what? Because they don't have as much now, you know what the Israelites say? God's not living up to his end of the bargain. We don't have as much, therefore we're going to give him less, which then amplifies the curse. And then they have even less. And then they say, see, God's not living up to his promises, not providing for us. We're not going to give him what we owe him. And then the process gets worse, okay? It exacerbates the curse that we sit under. Now, again, I want you to hear curse like, I want you to hear curse like punishment, Okay, um, like discipline. Okay, Th- this is not a curse where he's abandoning his people. The whole point of this passage is that he's calling his people back to himself. But he's saying you are sitting under a, a a a disciplinary situation, a situation where I'm bringing judgment on me on you because you will not follow me in this thing. So he says, instead, I'm not going to take this excuse that you have less, so you can't afford to give as much. Verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Bring the full thing in. I want everything that you owe me so that there can be food in my house, right? This is what we find when we, when we look at, at the picture that the tithe that is coming in is going to different things. It's going to the provision for the Levites, the workers in the temple. It's going to other things that are connected to temple worship. But God basically says, I don't have these things in my house because you're not bringing them, okay? And so on the one hand, we have this command to tithe, but we also see these other pieces that come into it from the scriptures um, that sort of add a fullness to the picture. The scripture prioritizes God as the recipient of the best that we have to offer. Okay, so there's not just this thing where it's like, hey, in the Old Testament, there was this 10% you were supposed to give. There you go, right? There's more to it than that because there's a heart issue going on. The idea is that we're supposed to give God what is best 
from what we have. We've already talked about this a couple of weeks ago in the book of Malachi, right? We already talked about the fact that the Israelites were bringing subpar sacrifices. They were taking the lame, they were taking the broken, they were taking the busted animals that they had. Nobody would want, they wouldn't give that to their governor, they wouldn't give that to the leaders in their communities, they wouldn't give it to their rabbi, but they'll give it to God because why not slough it off on him? And God said, that's revealing something about your hearts. I want your best, not the junk. And moreover, not just the best, but I want the first fruits. That's another idea that we see coming in, right? I want the first fruits that we give to God from the first things that we produce from our crops or flocks or for us in our, in our livelihoods or whatever, and not from the things that are left over at the end. We don't just give him what's left over. And again, as we, we move into the New Testament, the teaching on tithing is distinct, it's different, it's distinct, okay? It changes a little bit. Um, it's less delineated, maybe you could say, but it doesn't change in its importance. The Old Testament tends to talk about percentages and measures and, and things like that when it comes to our tithing. The New Testament, again, focuses on the attitudes of our hearts. What's going on in our hearts with these things? Because the reality is, is that money, along with a few other things, are bellwethers of where our hearts are at. So let me, let me read you just a couple of passages from the New Testament, okay? And we get a picture of, of giving in the New Testament. So this is from 1 Corinthians 16. It says, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. Okay? So we see some principles there. We give regularly at the beginning of every week. We give deliberately, right? We have to plan ahead of time for our giving. We give proportionately. That is, it's based on your income, not based on some generic number that's out there. Second Corinthians 8. He's talking about the giving of um, the, the Corinthians. And he says, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service of the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. And then it goes on to say, but since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, in complete earnestness and in love of every kind, see also that you excel in the grace of giving. That's an interesting line. So what do we see? Giving is something that we're supposed to do generously, sacrificially, excellently. Say, Ash, what number? Give me a number. I want to know a number. It doesn't give us a number. Matthew 6 tells us to give quietly. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from the father, your Father in heaven, right? We don't give so that everybody knows how much we give, so that we can, we can, you know, be the people who, who, um, receive that kind of praise. We give quietly, secretly, even. Second Corinthians nine, remember this, whosoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whosoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver 
And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work, right? So what do we see there? Giving has to be voluntary. And if I guilt you into giving, we got a problem. If you're doing it um, not out of a cheerful heart, a heart that sees giving as an honor to be a part of the work of God, but instead a resentful heart where you're like, man, I just you know, have to give this whatever. Something's wrong, okay? It's interesting. The New Testament focuses on the desires of our hearts, right? Whereas in the Old Testament, we get a lot of numbers, man. It's almost overwhelming sometimes. It's like you need to give a fifth of a quart of a hen and a epith and a thing and a this much and a pound and a weight to these or whatever. You get to the New Testament and there's no numbers there. It's just what's going on in your heart. Give generously, give deliberately, give regularly, give sacrificially, give excellently, give quietly, give voluntarily. Give cheerfully. All these things that we find. Here's the deal. Our resistance to tithing, I think, usually comes from two attitudes. Could be something else from some people, but I think it often comes from these two places. One, it is a prioritizing of other things over God's call and command. Okay, simple as that. We just say, man, I know I'm supposed to, but I want to do these other things. And I can't do all of them. It's usually the case that, not the case, that we don't have enough to give, but really that we've prioritized other things over giving. We still have money for our hobbies. We still have money for our comforts. We still have money for our habits. We still have money for our excesses. Again, the real problem is, is we prioritize those things and say they are central. They get my money. And in, 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 in a way, they get our, my worship and, and not the things of God. That's why, in my opinion, one of the most helpful practices when it comes to giving is this idea that comes from that Old Testament idea of first fruits, okay? Um, you give from the beginning of your of your crop or your earning, not from the end of it, okay? Um, and there's a reason for that. We all know the reason for that, okay? And I'll give you an illustration. I heard a story one time about a guy, an actor, who was going to be in this big-budget movie, and when they were negotiating the contract for his salary for the movie, um, they said, well, hey, we can either pay you a lump sum up front or you can share in the profits. You can get a share of the profits. And this guy was like, man, this movie is going to be huge, right? I got a feeling like it is going to be a blockbuster kind of movie, make tons of money. And so I think I'm going to come out a lot better if I take a share of the profits. And so what happened is the guy said, yeah, I won't take anything up front, but I get a certain cut of the profits and whatever it was, 10% or 20% of, of the profits or whatever it was. Well, then the movie came out and the movie was a massive hit. It made, you know, it was a, it was a blockbuster. It made hundreds of millions of dollars. And when the actor came and said, I'm ready for my gigantic paycheck now as a, as a function of the profits, the producers of the movie said, Oh, there weren't any profits. When he said, well, what do you mean? You know, this movie made hundreds of millions of dollars. And he was like, well, yeah, yeah, but we had to pay everybody. And so we producers got paid tens of millions of dollars because that was what we had contracted for. And the other actors got paid their millions of dollars. That's what they got trying to contracted for. And the, the cameraman and the this and the this, and the special effects and everybody, everybody got paid all their money. And the reality is there's not any money left. So you can have 20% of nothing. But that's all you get, okay? Something like that happens when we give to God. Is we say, God, I'm going to give you 
100% of whatever's left over at the end. Except we get to the end and there's nothing left over because we've already spent it all on all of the things that we wanted to spend it on. That's one of the problems. We prioritize other things over God. The other thing is this. It is a lack of trust in the God who cares for us and provides for us. We think to ourselves, man, I can't give God what I owe him because I've got to take care of myself. Um, I've, I've got to provide for myself. I've got to provide for my family. I've got to do these things. I can't give what God asks me to give. And again, remember, we haven't put a number on that even. But I'll bet you know a number in your heart, right? You know what you feel like you ought to be giving. But you say, I can't do that because I, I feel uh, I, I, I just don't, I won't have enough money. I won't have enough money to provide for my family. But here's what's cool about this passage is God invites us to put him to the test. Okay, that's a nuts passage. All right, if you've read the Bible in general, that's something you don't do. You don't put God to the test normally, right? Remember Jesus in the garden, I mean, not in the garden, but at, at his temptation um, when he's being tempted by Satan, right? And he says, hey, man, jump off the top of the temple because God says the angels will come and lift you up and your, your foot won't strike the ground. And what does Jesus says? He says, don't put put the Lord your God to the test, right? We don't do that, right? We don't put God in a situation where he has to show up um, just to prove to ourselves that he's He's out there or whatever, okay? But guess what? In this case, he says, do it. Do it. See if I don't bless you. Do what you're supposed to do. Give how you're supposed to give and see if I don't pour out blessing upon you. He says, thereby test me says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more. Again, that's a, that's a crazy passage. You think you need to watch out for yourself. You think that if you don't take care of yourself, nobody will, but it isn't true. God says, honor me and I will prove myself faithful. So, so let me just say this from, from my perspective. Tithing sermons are always weird, right? Because at one level, I'm asking you to do something that is directly going to benefit me. Now, technically, it's not right now, okay? Because you guys don't pay me, right? There's, I don't get a dime from this congregation, all right? All of my income comes from Mother Church, okay? Um, I take that back. We do, you do get a, a piece of it now, um, because the, our church has started to give some money to, to, that, that will, um, pay my salary. Okay. Um, but not the primary part of it. Right. And so I'm, I'm not up here trying to say, Hey man, I, I just want you to give me some more stuff so I can have more stuff and, and, and whatever like that. Okay. But I can tell you this from Christy and I's personal perspective, we have been tithers our whole marriage. Okay. From the beginning of the time that we got married, we decided in our lives, you may decide something different, that a 10% tithe with special gifts on top of that was what we wanted to do and what we felt like God wanted us to do in terms of our giving, okay? Um, 10% is not a New Testament command, but it certainly seems like a good place to start from the Old Testament teaching. I've always kind of had this idea in my head, and maybe you have too, that if under the law we gave 10%, it just seems weird to give less than that under grace. I don't know that that's a particularly New Testament idea. I didn't get that from a verse. It's just something that we've kind of thought in our heads. But anyway, what I can say is this. 
God has provided for us at every turn. We have always given that, and he has always taken care of us. Okay? And that includes many times throughout our lives where, man, I mean, we've been a single family income most of our marriage. Okay? And I don't know if you knew this, but if you're looking to make a bunch of money, youth ministry is not the route. All right? You don't get into youth ministry to make a ton of money. I started out when it started out in ministry and I was making basically what an underpaid public school teacher would, would be without the benefits. Okay. And a lot of people would probably look at that and say, that's not going to be enough to have a family on. And guess what? It was God always provided. God has always taken care of us. Now I'm going to go ahead and tell you that doesn't mean money just falls in your lap all the time. Okay. You know how he's also provided for us. He provided for us by letting me take on a really cush second job where I get great benefits and make a little extra money. It fits into my schedule. It doesn't take too many hours out of my week. It doesn't pull me away from my family. But here's the deal. I consider that a way that God has provided, right? It's not, it would have been nicer if like somebody just dumped a bucket of money on our house every, you know, two or three months or whatever. But that's not what happened. But but he did provide for us, right? He has given me a way to make up that gap um, that, that I didn't have. And man, it's coming a hundred other little ways, right? Opportunities to make a little bit of money here, opportunities to save a little bit of money here. Things last longer. Man, y'all, many of y'all know the continuing saga of my little white Corolla, right? Okay. And, and man, the little engine that could, and it just keeps on going. And I don't say this is a joke. That thing is running on prayer. Okay. It is running on prayer. We do crazy things that shouldn't work to it. Okay. It, Casey's not here, but Casey took it and had it fixed because the timing chain was off. We got it fixed. And as soon as we got it fixed, the, the, the oil light came on, which probably means that a piece of metal came off in the process and it's in there. And now the filter's clogged up, which means you got to tear the whole thing apart again. Another $400, $500 in labor, another $400, $500 in parts or whatever. But you know what we did? We said, Dear Lord Jesus, we're going to pour kerosene in the gas tank. And we're going to pray that that dissolves whatever is holding that little piece in there. And we did. Because it's a little trick that mechanics use sometimes that not many people, guess what? It worked. Now you might say, well, cool, Ash, you had a trick that made it work. I don't think it was the trick that made it work. The trick was just the means of making it work. I prayed during that time and I said, God, we don't have enough money for another car right now. I don't want to deal with another car right now. Would you just make my little Corolla keep running. And it has 276,000 miles. Woo, keep on going. Okay. Um, you probably say, well, that's, it's a Toyota ash. It's going to keep on running like that. Maybe not. Okay. I don't think Toyota is the reason it's running. I think God is the reason it's running because he's blessed it. He has allowed it to keep on going. That's the way he provides, right? Again, it doesn't mean that when, when you, when you give God what is owed him, that he's going to say, oh, well, you don't have enough to have a, you know, uh, a Ferrari now, so I'm just going to gift you a Ferrari. That's not how it works. And yet we are taken care of. We've never wanted for anything. My kids have never starved. Um, they've always had a roof over our head. Our bills have always been paid. God watches out for us as we prove him faithful. As we trust him and say, I'm going to give you what I believe you're asking me to give God, he proves himself faithful. Every single time. A neat thing about this passage is verse 11. One of the ways that he does that, it says, 
It says, instead of the curse, you will find that you are living in blessing in abundance in a particular way. He says, I will rebuke the devourer, devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine and your field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord. Okay. So sometimes companies uh, like businesses do efficiency. Uh, they have like an efficiency expert comes in basically. And that efficiency person, uh, what they're there to do is show you how you can do the same amount of work, but get more yield out of it. Right. This is a spiritual version of that is essentially what God says is one of the ways I bless you is all of a sudden you'll find that the normal things that you did produced more than they used to somehow. A car that you were supposed to get 200,000 miles out of, you'll get 300,000 miles out of, okay? The job that you thought was going to give you this standard of living, they saw your your um, faithfulness, they saw your good work, and they give you a raise or they give you a promotion or they think like something like that, right? There are ways that you don't realize that because of your unfaithfulness, you are wasting stuff somehow, right? Because there's a curse on you. Again, don't men hear, don't hear that in some kind of weird way, right? Like I, I'm not even talking about spiritual warfare kind of curse. I'm saying God is allowing, he's not rewarding you because you're not being faithful. How much is lost every year that you could have retained if you had been faithful in the things that God had given you? How much would you have gained, received from God in blessing if you had done what God asked you to do? At the end, he says this. He says, when you do this, when I pour out my blessing on you, when I open the windows of heaven, all the nations are going to call you blessed. For you will live in a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Right? Again, I'm not, this is not in any way, shape, or form some sort of name it, claim it, prosperity gospel nonsense. Okay? That's not what we're talking about. Okay? We're not talking about sow a seed of faith today and a receipt. We're not saying that. Okay, but what we are saying is God says, you stole from me. I want it back. If you honored me, you would give me what you owe me. And if you'll do it, because I'm a good and loving father, I'm going to bless you for being obedient. And if you won't do it, then I, you are going to sit under my discipline. And if you will be obedient, man, everybody around you is going to see that I take care of you. You will be a blessed nation or a blessed family or a blessed individual. And it will be a land of delight. Man, I feel like that probably says God wants us to, he, he's not, this isn't a process for him to impoverish us. It is a means by which he's going to bless us. So here's the deal, and I'll close on this. I could talk about the practical side of giving. Okay, because we talk about that a little bit. You know, I, I, we've been pretty open with the fact that as a church, if we were cut off from the mother church tomorrow, that we would we would not have enough money to to sustain ourselves, right, in, in the things that we would want to do. Um, and so I could talk about the practical side of giving. I could talk about how churches have to buy things, they have to keep the lights on, they have to pay people. We could talk about how the worker is worthy of his wages and how, you know, that's that's an honorable thing. There's there's nothing wrong with me receiving a salary to be a pastor. Um, that's That's a biblical concept, right? Um, those who are in vocational ministry should expect to get their living from it, right? It's a biblical idea. We could talk about wisdom of using money well and stewarding well and all those things right that. And there is something to be talked about. Those are important things, but it's not where this passage starts. The passage starts with saying this. 
Giving is an act of worship. When you give, you are worshiping God. And if you don't give, you are withholding that proper worship. Like we said at the beginning, money, time, commitment are all uh, canary in the coal mine kind of issues. You know that illustration, right? You know that that analogy, the canary in the coal mine back in the old days when you would do coal mining, um, gases build up that are toxic to people, right? So what do you do? You take a canary down in the coal mine with you in a cage. And the reality is, is that canaries are so little and delicate that their bodies die quicker than yours will because of the toxic levels of, of gas in the mine. So if you've got a little canary on a coal mine, and all of a sudden you look over and that canary's dead, that means you got to get out because pretty soon you're going to be dead too. Most of you guys have been on the Blazing Inferno ride, I think, in Dollywood. There's a canary there too, right? Isn't that the one? Yeah. Um, that's an insider tip. Y'all knew people you don't know about Dollywood yet, but you're going to find out, okay? Um, money, time, commitment. That's the canary in the coal mine of our hearts. If we start looking and saying, man, I'm holding back my money from the Lord. I'm holding back my time from the Lord. I'm holding back my commitment from the Lord. That is a bellwether of where your heart is headed. The trajectory of your heart is off. Something's wrong there. You owe God the worship he deserves. And to withhold our giving is to take away what is rightfully his. So let's worship God with our giving. Let's do all those things we said a minute ago. Let's think about it, plan for it, give proportionately, give generously. And here's the deal. I mean that beyond this church, okay? Um, I want to, I would love to see us giving, um, to causes that we want to help, right? When we have the Lottie Moon offering next year, uh, which we had this year, I want to see that offering go up, not because this church receives any of those funds, but because they go to international missions. I want to see the giving go up across the board. That we would use our money to bless others, that we would use our money to worship God, and that as we worship God in our giving, we will watch as he opens, he says, the windows of heaven that the blessings um, will pour in abundance on us in our church. Amen? So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Again, I love, I love the New Testament because it doesn't tell you what to give. It says, let the Lord tell you what to give. And if you decide that that is X amount, and you are convinced in your own heart that, that is what God has called you to, then that's between you and the Lord. It's not, I, I've got nothing to say to you at that point. He doesn't give us a number, but he tells us to be faithful. So let's pray to that end and, and ask God to work in our, uh, in our church and, and that we would honor him with our giving. Father God, um, God, talking about money is always a personal issue. Um, it is always an issue, um, God, it feels like 
Um, you are getting into our business. And the reality is, is because you are, um, because you know how close those things are to our hearts, how close they are to our trusting of you, how close they are to our um, making you a priority in our life. God, if we live in a way um, where we dishonor you with our money, um, God, I fear that it is um, pointing to the fact that we will dishonor you in other ways in our lives. So, God, we ask that um, you would help us to be um, prayerful uh, and and conscientious about our giving. Um, God, that we would see it as an act of worship. And then after we have committed to give, then we begin to ask those other questions about how and where and, and to what end and, and all those different things. God, help us to worship you rightly in our giving. God, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song.
song takes on funny nuance when you just had a sermon on tithing. I don't know. About, like, does that, did anybody else pick up on that? Like, you listen to that song. I've sung that song a hundred times, and it meant one thing. And then as you as you listen to it, thinking in the context of worship and tithing, like, uh, it, it, there, there's things that stood out to me. Um, for those of you who are guests, sorry you came with the tithing sermon, okay? Um, I can, I, I think I probably... Preached on tithing probably one or two other times the entire time we've been at church. You just caught it on the lucky day, right? So, um, uh, come back next week because we're going to talk about sin and judgment too. So, um, but, um, again, here's the deal. And, 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 uh, so I, I, I went to Auburn this weekend, um, with, with India to go to the retirement party for my college pastor. He's been the director of the Auburn, Auburn Wesley Foundation for almost 40 years, which is a really cool thing and a long stretch. And there's this whole, you know, generations of people who have been influenced by him. And at the end of the, uh, at the end of the, uh, ceremony to honor him and, and everything like that, they, they had a capital campaign, right? And they were saying, Hey man, we want to, if you want to honor David, um, and see, uh, the Wesley foundation continue, then we're asking you to give because of these things and, and different stuff. And, and, you know, there's this first little piece that came up in me that said, you're sort of like, Oh, here it is. Right. Here's the, here's the pitch. Okay. And, 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 and then, and then I stopped in, in my heart and I kind of said, no, you know what? This is important. Right. This ministry has changed the direction of my life. Um, I would not be a pastor were it not for the Wesley Foundation at Auburn University. I can tell you that for a fact. I would not be a pastor were it not for my experiences there. I probably would not be a pastor were it not for David Goolsby. And so you can see it and you can sort of say, oh, yeah, man, it's just trying to get money again like they always do. And the answer is no. This is something that's important. If we love this, then it's important to give to it. And more importantly, if we love the Lord and he has called us to these things, then there's no shame. Okay. And so then by that same token, visitors, I'm not sorry you came on, on the, the tithing sermon week, right? Um, wherever you end up, I hope you take that same idea back and say, we worship God in many ways, but one of the ways we do that is with our giving. Okay. Um, anyway, glad you're here. Good to see you. Um, uh, we will have one more disputation, um, next week. Um, and then that will lead us into resurrection Sunday, but, um, here's benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.